Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and thanks for tuning in to the Dealer Insights Podcast, where we go under the hood, bumper to bumper, and just about everywhere in between, discussing topics important to dealers of all types and sizes. Your time is valuable, so thanks for riding along for this episode of Dealer Insights. Welcome to episode one of Dealer Insights, powered by Strala. I'm Sean. I'm Vinny, <laughs> and we're very excited to, to to be here. I'm very excited to be with my buddy Sean. It's going to be Long fantastic. Time. It's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. So, yeah. this is the kickoff episode for Dealer Insights, a brand new podcast that focuses on insights uh, around and inside the automotive industry. There will be a heavy focus on these podcast episodes of customer experience, of sales process, of really the inner workings of what happens in automotive. And episode one is really going to focus on some of those pieces that if you're, if you're newer to the automotive industry, you may or may not know some of its history. And it's really important in terms of context to understand, well, how were cars sold in the 60s or the 50s or the 80s or really anything before the dawn of the internet because that has changed the car business pretty substantially would you agree 100 percent. yeah 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 so one of the things that i wanted uh to share with the audience from your perspective is like when did you actually get into the car business like what year was it 1994 which makes me old 94. Well, yeah. yeah, that's... I was a young... I mean, I, young I got in in 90, 91, was working in a parts warehouse while in college. So... There you go. We're both Actually, really I, I'll take that back. I started working in automotive in 1987. I worked at a Sears Automotive in my town, and I used to work in the battery room. I used to carry batteries out to the technicians, and then I started changing oil and then I started selling in the drive, like these oil change coupons. And um, I remember the general manager of the store said, all right, when someone comes in, just make sure you offer this to every single person. So like within three hours, I sold every single book that he gave me and he came back and he was like, what? You sold them all. And then he brings all the service writers in and he was like, you see this kid? You guys can't sell one of these things. He just <laughs> sold like 20. <laughs> so he's like, how did you do that? I go, I don't know. I just thought it was a good deal. So I told everybody about it. That was my first kind of like glimpse into selling. You know, I, I, I realized like that was very hard. Why aren't these other guys doing it? All I did was show it to everybody. Sometimes it's that simple, you know, it does. Serve it was a good deal. It was like 10 oil changes for like 80 bucks. Back then, oh, yeah, eight bucks in oil change. It's like, how the hell do you? That's amazing. That down. That's amazing. Yeah. So when you got into the dealer side of the business in '94, was there a reason? Like, why did you? What did you get into it? Was it just, hey, it's a good job, or did somebody? I mean, how? Would, I'm curious to know from everybody that gets into the car business, who invited you in? Like, what was the? You know, why didn't you do something else? Yeah, so my dad was in the business, and um, he's always been a great salesman. 
and did FNI and all this stuff and made decent money, like really good money. And I, I saw a lot of my friends out of college. <clears throat> I actually started at Putnam Investments when I was uh, out of college. And actually, even before that, um, Prudential. And mm. I'm thinking, you know, I'll go work for one of these big companies. Well, I went into Prudential the second day of training. They asked me to write down 100 names of people that I knew. I was like, huh? Mm. What do you need that for? They're like, because we're going to call them and sell them insurance. <laughs> I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> this isn't what I expected for this job. <laughs> and then I got, I got my Series 6. Mary Kay. Yeah, I got my Series 6 at Putnam Investments, and I thought that was a cool industry, you know, learning about mutual funds and all that. And they're local. And basically, I was just on the phone helping people with questions on their 401ks. And it wasn't very... It wasn't much money, and um, so me and buddy of mine, actually, me and a buddy of mine spent a summer selling T-shirts during the World Cup. And when it was in in, uh, it, it came to Boston. It was like ninety two, I think, maybe ninety, yeah, somewhere around there, ninety four, maybe. Anyway, mm-hmm. I made a whole bunch of money selling T-shirts, more than I was making at either of those other companies. So I like. They can sales, and then I told you about my initial experience selling those coupon books. And I just, yeah. I don't want to say I thought I was good at it. I just didn't think it was that difficult. And a lot of people think sales is difficult. Yeah. And uh, I've always kind of figured, hmm, if I can sell something that someone needs, that's pretty easy. So then my first, I decided to go work for a car dealership against my dad's wishes. He didn't want me in the business. Um, me and a buddy of mine went to a, a place that no longer exists. Um, and it was, I didn't know this at the time, but a lot of the guys worked for another company, another dealership that was put out of business because they were screwing people. And the attorney general shut them down. Mm-hmm. And then they all migrated to this place. So when I talk, when you talk about sharks, man, the, this place was rough, and back then, they didn't have transparency. There was no prices on windows. I mean, salespeople didn't even know what the prices of the cars were, and they would mm. hammer people. Like, and so I did that for no like, window stickers. No, no. Uh, well, no, no. They had window stickers on new. I'm talking about used, pre-owned. So, I uh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And basically, what they wanted me to do is get an offer and a credit card. It was a real hardcore place. Like, if you went to the desk without a credit card, if you ever seen the movie Suckers, that's kind of what it was like. They were pretty rough. Yeah. And, yeah. And so I got a, I spent a year there and I hated it. I, I actually, I, I didn't even want to like go to work because I felt bad for the customers. I had one girl, mm. to give you a quick example, one girl interested in the 2000, uh, I'm sorry, 19, like 92 Isuzu Rodeo. That was like this light blue. She loved it. And so I, how much is it? I said, well, you got to come inside. So I bring her inside. I go to the desk. They tell me like 18 grand. And I'm thinking this thing's five years old and like a new one's 25. And I'm like, all right, whatever. I go over and she's like, oh, that's way too much for me. But uh, I'm like, well, I got trained to get an offer and a credit card. So I said, well, how much were you looking to spend? And she said, I think like 15. <clears throat> so I got the credit card, went to the desk and then they would come over and, and like hammer her. I didn't really do much selling uh, back then. And um, let me just shut my phone up. Anyway, they got her up to $17,000 
and sold it, <clears throat> my commission was like two grand. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what the heck, these poor girl. Like, I felt bad for her. <laughs> like, they probably could have sold it at 15, no problem, and made money. But that was the car business back then. And I think a lot of people today don't realize how bad it actually was. And that's why I chuckle a lot when, when, when people talk about, oh, I hate buying a car today. Well, whew. Yeah, well, it wasn't yeah. like well, and, and that was like the early '90s and late '80s. It was really rough. I think previous to that, anyway, I left there and went to another dealership, gave it another shot, and um, I met two of my mentors, David Rosenberg and David Hall. Um, both are very successful guys in the industry, and they had a different approach, which was the golden rule, right? Take care of your customer, and. Um, I built a career there, you know, with them because I, I, I like them a lot and I like their mm -hmm. philosophies. I did leave them for a couple of years. Um, I moved to the South Shore with my wife in 98, um, tried to get out of the car business. I never really liked the car business. I never really liked selling cars, but I was pretty good at it. Anyway, I, 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 David asked me to do, he said that he had this new concept for this thing called a, a business development center. Toyota was pushing it on him. And that's how I got into the BDC business. I, I started it from scratch. No, no real CRM. We built a database out of Access, uh, Microsoft Access, and collected data. I had sheets of inventory. We, all we did was take phone calls. This was like 96. Um, and, and it got me out of the, the selling of cars and got me into, you know, just dealing with customers. And, and that's kind of how I got into it. But I, I got into it, number one was because... If, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of my friends were making 20, 30 grand a year right out of college. And my first check from a car sale was like two grand. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, you were addicted. Right. Well, I always liked money. I didn't like the way they went about it. I knew there had to be a different way to sell people cars. And I think, you know, mm -hmm. you, and I, you and I have talked about this before. It is all, all of a sudden in the last 15 years is all this talk about different generations, right? The big baby boomers mm -hmm. and, and we're Gen X, right? So we're old now, but I remember when Gen X was, was new. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so we were like the first generation. I think that was exposed to technology at a young age and we were exposed to ESPN and CNN and we were exposed to a lot of the eighties really transformed quickly, you know, into all kinds of different media, um, um, back then, yeah. the newspaper was still a big deal. Um, but yeah, we we can get into the history because I think that that that's that's interesting. The history of the car, of the car business, I mean, to me, goes like this: you know, cars were invented, and <clears throat> most people lived in concentrated areas like New York City or Boston or Atlanta or you know L.A., you know, Miami, and so on, uh, yeah. Chicago. Um, so you didn't go very far. Like I, I live in Wyndham, New Hampshire now. So I remember as a kid, New Hampshire was like where you went camping. <laughs> like nobody really lived there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like my whole, all my family like was within. I lived seven miles. I grew up seven miles north of Boston, and all my family were within you know ten fifteen minute drive of us. So you didn't go very far. Yeah. So all the dealers back yeah. in the day, like probably in the 50s, 60s, which I wasn't born then, but 
Um, they were all local dealers, right? You went to your local dealer and got, and, 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 mm-hmm. and uh, men and women were like loyal to brands like Ford. I'm a Ford guy. Or I'm a Chevy guy. I'm a Chrysler guy. So there wasn't really a yeah. whole lot of need for, for, uh, there wasn't any really need for shopping. You just went there and bought a car. That's what you did. I'm sure there was some haggling and yeah. stuff like that going on. But then again, the other the other thing is the car was only like fifteen hundred to maybe three grand back in the forties, fifties, sixties. They only had maximum two year terms to to take a loan out on a car. That's as high as you could go. So of course the brand loyalty was really strong because you didn't own a car for more than two years. Every two years you traded it, got a new one. So before it actually broke yeah. down and all that, and you loved your car and. And, and and then the 70s hit, which is very, very similar to what's going on today with inflation. So a car went from being mm-hmm. around five grand to about like 15 in a matter of 10 years. And that's what inflation yeah. is. The prices just get out of control. And uh, that's yeah. what's going on right now with, you know, gas prices and cars are really expensive right now and and so forth. So that's when shopping started and from what I gather, right, and have read about, read through. People just said, started saying, hey, listen, they're expensive, so I don't want to get screwed anymore. So they started shopping mainly by phone. Dealers started using, like, print more, um, hooks more, like, <clears throat> lowball prices in the newspaper and all that kind of stuff. Radio, obviously, TV. You know, Ira ran the... Uh, yeah. David uh, Rosenberg's father, Ira, was also a very... Um, he was like a mentor to me. He was a sale. He was a salesman too. He, he's he's like my dad. These guys were salesmen. I mean, they kissed babies. They came out and hugged people, and were always on TV. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew who they were, and they were happy that people knew who they were. And they did yeah, want to yeah. take care. Of, he did want to take care of customers, which was really exciting for me because I left a place that was like they were just hammering people. And they became yeah. wildly successful, Ira. And I got to watch it grow and, and expand, and they helped me with my career and all that kind of stuff. But the, the shopping started in the 70s and the 80s, and then David said, hey, listen, our salespeople, don't, they're terrible at taking phone calls, so this BDC idea, you're going to take all the phone calls. And I'm like, all right, I can do that. Um, and he really wanted me to do it, so I did it. And um, then I left for a couple of years, uh, and I came back. And um, David Holt said to me, can you come back and do the BBC again? I was like, no, I don't really want to do that. And here's why. The resistance that I got from the old school guys was, it was unbearable. Sales guys? Unbearable. Yeah. Because we were one of the first, we were one of the first groups to quote prices to customers. That was like taboo. Why would you do that? Oh, so customer would come in and say, oh, no, I got this price quoted to me. And the salespeople would be mad back then. Because they used to, you know, was that one of the was that one of the primary reasons why the salespeople would be mad is because of what you were doing and providing pricing for people before they would come into the dealership. It wasn't always about pricing, right? I never looked at you know BDC or to me, it's it's really simple. You do all this marketing, you spend all this money to do what? To drive traffic, drive leads, drive calls, drive walk-in traffic. Like a lead, a walk-in customer is a lead. It's just the best lead you. Yeah. It's the best lead you have. Um, it would yeah. be great if they all walked in, but they don't. They started calling in the eighties. Yeah, they started calling in the nineties. Yeah, and then of course, as you and I know, the emergence of the internet 
really blew blew it open because now they could go online and go to Edmonds and research what the dealer owned the car for. You know, like the first place I worked at, yeah. right? I remember this like it was yesterday. I had a customer come in. This was probably 2004, 2005. Customer comes in and says, I'm sorry, 1994, 1995, and asked one of these like real hardcore like car guys, I want to see the invoice. And he said, the manager looks him in the eye. This is what reminds me of suckers. He looks the customer in the eye and he says, you got a, you got $10 million? The customer's like, what? What are you talking about? No, I don't have $10 million. And he's like, well, when you get $10 million, you can go buy a dealership and look at all the invoices you want. No. Oh, yeah. That's a true. That was that wow. truly happened right in front of me. Like, and and there were more. I don't want to bore yeah. you to death, but there were more <laughs> incidences like that oh, that I'm made sure. me think. Wow, I'm sure. like I got to see the real inside of why people hated the car business back then. You know. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I and you know this, but um, I only sold cars for a short period of time. I've done so much um, else in the industry uh, for a much longer period of time. But I did sell cars and most people that know me know why I did for the time period that I did. But just in a, in a couple of years of selling cars, the experiences and the internet was around then that was yeah. like early two thousands. And it still was shocking. Like there was just a lot of toxicity, uh, unnecessary, behavior right that gave the industry in my opinion uh you know kind of the the stain of bad reputation and why people don't i mean you mentioned a couple of things here just in the last few minutes uh, around how you know the internet changed and you know juxtaposed to when you got into it imagine in 1994 what somebody had to do to just do a research on, hey, I want to buy a new vehicle, a truck, a, a car, whatever. In 1994, how would you even research buying a new family car? I'll tell you how. It was real simple. There's a dealer here locally. He had a he had a um, a slogan for years. I don't think it works so much so well for him right now, but he still uses it. Shop us last, you'll love us. So deal customers would shop three dealers. This is what they would do. So you'd want to be the last dealer that they saw, they came to. Because if you're the first one, they say, no, no, no I got to go talk to two others. And and that's when they would get, in the old days, lowballed. So a dealer would say, even if I would could yeah. sell it to you for this price right now, you wouldn't buy it. And they would say no. And then they would leave with that number in their head. Then they'd go to the other two places <laughs> and tell the other two dealers, yeah. hey, look at I could get this for over there. And then they would come back and say, no, 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 no. I, I asked you what if, right? And it was just such a, a ridiculous game. Right. Of, like, right. <laughs> like, right. Like a game remember of shells, when I said, you know? um, remember <laughs> when I used the word today, <laughs> you know, is yeah. there anything that I can get you do I, to do to drive this home? I absolutely hated the game, man. I hated it. I used to tell customers like, "Oh yeah, don't go." Listen, this is a really good price. Don't. Why are you going to go torture yourself and go to other places? And they were two days later, and they come back. No, no, that price was only good <laughs> that right. day. I used to try to beg them. 
So then the customer has to say, so it's gone up by $5,000. Yes. Yes, it has. So like, I'm not a rocket science. I'm not a rocket scientist, right? Like I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but it was pretty easy for me to recognize that there was opportunity in this industry. Um, because I saw, I, I think I've told you this before, but, um, when I was in college, a professor had showed, showed us all, uh, on a computer. So like my first two years in college, I used the typewriter. And then I remember the third year I got, a, I, someone showed me a word processor and I was like, wow, that's game changing. Cause I never took a typing class. So it was like, but this professor showed us this new yeah. thing called AOL. Right. And I'm like, Hmm, that's really interesting. And it just like, it interested me right away. And I didn't totally understand it. I know it's hard yeah. for people to under, not, not understand what, how you couldn't understand the internet, but it, it was hard to get your head around it. Like it was hard to get your head around the fact that newspapers mm-hmm. would go away. Dealers spent so much money advertising yeah. a newspaper, print radio back then. And um, so how could that go away? Right. You'd go out of business if you didn't advertise in one of those mediums. Well, I saw it. I started. Yeah. My first experiences with the internet were uh, I'll never forget them because the, the content that my friend who was on the internet who was a year younger than me and he was a little more techie, a little nerdy. He's like, you got to check this thing out, man. The internet's amazing. And so, uh, yeah, I remember, I'll just leave it at this. The, the, one of the first things most people would think it's a one thing for, especially for guys. It wasn't that it, it was a website. I believe it was called Dan's gallery of the grotesque. And it was kind of like, do you remember you're in that same age group uh, as me? Do you remember, you know, you could go and rent a uh, face yeah. of death at the, um, that and was like the big thing. Like, oh, it's so yeah. gross. Cause it was like, yeah. And it was like real, you know, terror. It was just awful. It was um, disgusting. I remember that. This website was similar to <clears throat> that only a thousand times yeah. worse. And I was like, how can this information and these images, this content be in a place where the public can right. access it? Because to me, it was like, I mean, it burns things into my brain that I still see when I'm talking about it right now. And so to your point of, you know, the internet was, uh, it was a big deal, but getting your brain around how is this going to change businesses specifically, you know, in our case, Back then, how was the internet going to change the automotive industry? And I say this quite a bit now when I'm talking to dealers. Um, in the beginning, I was more of like, oh, come on, you stupid dealers. You didn't see that this was coming. It was going to be revolutionary, whatever. I was kind of in that camp of like, yeah, it's easy to beat up on a dealer who was naive and didn't see the value. But I've completely changed my mind about that. And now I, I'm much more of like, no, 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 because I was in it from the beginning as well. And when you had somebody come in and say, hey, you should be online and put your cars online and upload multiple pictures. And then I'm like, uh, I personally uploaded a picture and knew how yeah. long it took <laughs> to upload one picture in 1997, right? It, yeah, it was crazy. And so it, took three it actually to it made a lot online. more sense to me. The dealer, 
Yeah. I mean, all the modems, sounds and all that. So back then, I think, for, especially for folks that had been in the car business a long time, they probably saw the Internet as, you know, one more. That's why people, I think, even like I think Ziegler at the time back then was like, this is a fad, you know, it's not going <laughs> to stick. I think a lot of the, you know, veterans and guys, certainly that have been in retail for a long time, probably thought, man, we have seen so many things come in as like, you got to have this. It's a new kind of thing that they probably thought there's no way you understand how my business operates and think that this yeah, I don't is going think, to be helpful um, to me. I would, I would disagree a little with you. I think it was more um, resistance to it because they saw the fact that the consumer is now gaining power and I embraced it. Cause I was like, this ain't, this isn't going away and let's embrace it. Let's, let's see what we can do. And, and my boss was completely in agreement. And I remember we got one store to run a BDC and it was the Ira Toyota store in Danvers, which at one point we were number seven in the country in volume, but we went from like selling 180 cars a month to selling almost 900 cars a month out of that dealership new and used out of a four acre lot. And a lot of it had to do with how open leadership was at the IRA group to trying new things. Uh, and one of the reasons mm-hmm. I grew so I, my career grew so well with them was because I had the same mindset as them in terms of, you know, I know and a lot of people hated us back then because they, they can, they thought we were just giving, you know, cars away and stuff like that, but we were competitive. We were competing. We were trying to, you know, grow our business and, and, you know, the internet played a part in that, um, where we would give a price, you know, and then one of our biggest competitors, Bach Toyota, they would give prices. I remember every week we would see who we could go lower on, on, on a price of a Camry. It was crazy how competitive it was. Uh, but we were competing, we were competitive and we, and we, we, we did, we did well and we took care of customers and customers, the customer base grew exponentially. And so, to me, it's all about customer experience. That was an, that was a cut. That was a great example right there of cu- great customer experience at that time. Um, and you know, but at the end of the day, Sean, it starts with the marketing dollars you're spending to get the phones to ring. The marketing, the marketing dollars you're spending to get the leads to come through, uh, and not necessarily just buy leads, but to drive traffic. Um, social media became a big deal. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll just quickly go through the rest of my history, but I, I did the BDC. I, we did it. Ira Toyota. Then I asked David Rosenberg. It, I said, I, they, I actually became a sales manager for a year and then they wanted me back in the BDC. And I said, listen, if you want me back, I want to do all 13 locations the same way I did it for the Toyota store. And he's like, started yelling at me. He's like, Oh, we don't have the money for that. You know, expense, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, listen, it, it, you got to do it. Here's why. And then he agreed with me and we, we did it. He put me in a room. I remember, um, with no windows and used furniture uh, above a dealership. And I hired a bunch of people. You know, some of the people that did that with me are here with me today. Um, you know, Sean and Anthony have been with me since 2001. They run operations here at Stralit all the time. Um, uh, you know, weekly, um, daily and monthly, and they're great. And they helped me do it. We hired a bunch of people. And I remember the day we were like, okay, send us phone calls and we're on. And next thing you know, we're scheduling appointments for yeah. all the dealerships. And so when you're spending that kind of money in advertising, really the first and most important thing is that someone picks up the phone, which unfortunately doesn't happen all the time. Um, and to me, 
if it truly is about the customer experience and the customer, how could you not pick up a phone? And then it was like phone training and all that, which I've been through every single phone trainer there is. We've developed our own proprietary um, training on handling calls. And then all of a sudden in 2001, leads started coming in. As a matter of fact, leads started coming in 96, 97 through the fax machine. Yeah. Uh, but that. it was a lead, right? It was someone to call, it was someone to talk to. And I'm all about, I was always the phone guy. Um, I, I hated email back early on because I just, just didn't feel right. But if I could get somebody on the phone, I could have a conversation with them. Um, yeah. Find out what their yeah. needs are. And then I felt like we could help any customer because we had, you know, biggest inventory around and a good reputation and all that. So it was easy. It, it became easy because we were so good at what we did. It didn't become easy. You know what I mean? It didn't, yeah. it, it, it wasn't like overnight it became easy. It was like we had process. That's why it's strong process, solid results, Strollin, is because everything was a process with, I don't know if you, if you ever met David. Yeah, you met David Holt. Um, oh, yeah. Everything's processed. Oh, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. He's a military guy. So we had a process for everything. And uh, we still do. You know, some yeah. people, I, I've been reading a lot lately of people saying, oh, well, you know, we got to give you know, employees anonymity and all this other stuff and let them do their thing. Bullshit. I mm -hmm. mean, especially if they're not mm -hmm. experienced. Yeah. Especially if they've never. Yeah, yeah. They need to know. They need someone to explain not only why we what we do, but why we do it this way. You know, one of our taglines when we're hiring people is we don't hire people and train them to be nice. We hire nice people. Because that's the hardest thing is yeah. to find somebody that wants to take care of customers and, and that's nice. And we are extensive. We have probably, I mean, I'm talking world world class recruiting process right now, and we get some awesome people. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have training. We have a process to hire people. We have a process to get them into training. We set really solid expectations from them, and then we watch them and manage them. If you want to call that rigid, God bless you trying to run a business any other way. Oh, yeah. I, I can't imagine um, my the first, you know, jobs, roles that I had and what, you know, just out of college, just trying to figure out life. I can't imagine one, you know, like clamoring for, I want, you know, more freedom and right. more work-life balance and leave me alone and don't micromanage yeah. me and mm, 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 all this other, you know, happy shit that people talk about now. I can't imagine getting any substance and having anything to build a foundation off of if I wouldn't have had process. And I tell people often that there were a lot of processes in the impact then world pack environment of parts warehousing i worked for that company i was just a kid and they brought me up and i had amazing ment uh, an amazing mentor steve sims if you ever see this much appreciate uh, much appreciation that guy put me under his wing and he was very process oriented and he taught me processes about warehousing and logistics and delivery routes i was with that company for 10 years I went from that company to service writing for a while and then to Reynolds and Reynolds in 99, 2000 when CarPoint and Microsoft, like that's, yeah. that's the beginning. So I was in the car business for 10 years before digital. And then in digital, my first digital job in 99 with Reynolds and Reynolds, if for no other reason to appreciate the time I was at Reynolds for nearly eight years, 
process, process, training, training, lots of training. And I owe a lot of how I operate and my own successes to that. So I can't imagine, to your point, I can't imagine operating a business successffully by just letting people like do what you want like you know make your own hours and your own schedule and Listen, make your, your own, own hours though you I, can't I am. be it's funny because i kind of had this argument with somebody recently but i am more on a new wave of management it's just that there are certain expectations of the job that you need to perform and do at you know at, and, and, and we, we allow our uh, employees to call, call bullshit if they don't agree with what we do. Call bullshit, but come to me with something better. Don't just tell me you don't like doing it. You know, if, some, right. if there's something better out there, right. we're all ears. We're going to listen. But at the end of the day, at, at the end of the day, we're like, I tell my managers all the time, I don't care what your schedules are as long as we're covered. You know? It, yeah. And, and, and we will... What made us successful as a BDC too, um, at Group One and Ira, and then now here at Strahlid, is we don't make people work every weekend. We don't make them work mm-hmm. every, you know every night. We don't make them work fifty, sixty hours a week. Uh, it's a forty-hour week job. There's opportunities to grow into a a team lead position that might require forty-five hours a week. Our managers are working forty-five hours a week, but yeah. they might have to put in extra hours to cover for like sick time or vacations and stuff like that. But they get, they get paid for that too. Right. Um, and you know, it's all. Well, and this is something that every business does, right? How you cover, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, the type of business that you're in, any type of business is going to have to accommodate for, Hey, we've got people going out on, you know, a vacation or hey somebody's yeah. called out sick or whatever that you have yeah. that built in so that there's an accommodation for whatever happens as the business ebbs and flows right it's just that's a normal part of you try, of, of you, try you try being I on the phone for, you, for eight hours a day for five days in a row like nonstop. it's 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 a lot it's draining it can be draining you know when you're talking to customers all day yeah yeah so go ahead yeah so one of the one of the things that's interesting in this kind of evolution or this the history of of the of the business and really this is a kind of the the history relative to your experience but one of those points is you and I were both around at the time when uh, dealers didn't have there there, there were there wasn't such a thing as a website for a business let alone a you know a social network and so what are your memories what do you what's your recollection from that stage of hey you guys were getting you just mentioned it like you guys were starting to get leads off of the fax machine so you had lead providers out there before website providers uh, some of it some people would say it's around the same I think, time I think the web, but the lead providers were always one step ahead of dealers right they knew they could they understood the power of of building like landing pages and conversion pages and getting leads to dealers and dealers would pay for them because it was a new thing right yeah <laughs> i mean when you go back to the 70s 80s 90s if you had no one to call they would throw a phone book at you and say start start dialing and so when leads became like yeah. oh we're actually finding people that are interested flow, flowing in um it was like amazing you know um now we can just call people. They're telling us they're interested, and we don't have to wonder if they saw the newspaper or heard the radio spot. So it was a big deal. 
Uh, but I, yeah. but I mean, two things. One, I got married in 1998 and my wife and I used our wedding, some of our wedding money to buy a computer. That was my first computer I ever bought myself personally is a compact computer. And, um, yeah. And, and she was like, why are you buying that for? And it was like $1,800, like $2,500 or something crazy. It was expensive. Um, anyway, we, Wow. We, so, so that was one of my first experiences. But Dave, David Rosenberg, I remember, like, it was like '97. He brought me into his office, and he had this big screen computer and had the internet on it. And was showing me all this stuff on the internet, and I was like, "Hmm, interesting." And uh, but that, but, but at that time, we just got a website in like '98, I think, and uh, for the Ira Group, and it was terrible. Probably, I mean, if I look back on it today, I think it was. Um, Sean Wolfington's company. What was that website company called back then? At that time, it was uh, no, Automark. It was Automark. After they moved on from there, he had stayed out of the game for a while. And then they came back with BZ, BZ results. results. That's the one. But that was that was more in the 2000s, no. somewhere in the early 2000s. It wasn't BZ results. Anyway, we had a pretty bad website. And then I remember in 2001, I went to my first NADA convention and dealer, we, we decided to deal with dealer.com. They were from Vermont and like no one ever, no one ever heard of them before. And, um, their booth had a giant, like a screen, TV screen with the IRA motor group, uh, homepage at their booth. And it was like mm-hmm. the backdrop. The backdrop was what was the what was the URL for for that? What was the URL for that, was, that first website? Website. Yeah, do you remember? Uh, anyway, okay. it, it was, the backdrop was Boston. You know, and we weren't really in Boston. We were like twenty miles north of Boston. But anyway, I, that was my first encounter with dealer.com. I'm sure they were very excited to get us as a customer back then. Now you know pretty much who they are. Are you going to show us what it looked like? Well, we'll see. I don't know if it'll bring up an instance. January of 1999. Let's see what it it shows us. This was the IRA group. Welcome to the IRA group. I remember that. That was terrible, too. That's that's what the <laughs> that is what the uh, wayback machine remembers uh, about the IRA motor or two thousand two or two thousand three okay. maybe somewhere in there. Uh, two thousand. This would be this is like uh, dis, let's go to December, July twenty fifth, two thousand one. Let's try that. See what we get. <laughs> okay, I mean, yeah, yeah. Remember the flash? Does that look familiar. <laughs> yeah, everybody was all in on the uh, flash player. I can doubt you even look at archive to that. Can uh, you even see what it was now? It's no longer supported. So all the flash stuff was uh, not well, um, not well thought of. I mean, it was fl- it was cool. Dealers loved yeah. the, uh, but see all the splash stuff now. It's yeah. no longer supported. This is uh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty it's funny. funny. Nice. Yeah. So anyway, we 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 started getting so to, to just to re, uh, digress for a second. We went from seventies cars got expensive. People shop shop by phone. Then then leads started happening. <clears throat> from the nineties to the two, early two thousands, things started getting more transparent for consumers. Um, 
And I and I, I was lucky enough to grow up when we did because I got to see that transformation. I got to see it go from what it was to what it was what it is and what it continues to become. And so <laughs> it's interesting to me because a lot of people today say, you know, the car business needs disruption. Uh and it's like it has been disrupted quite a bit, um, in my opinion. Yeah. And over I, I think and the dealer over. model is a great model <laughs> if it's run well. Right, run right because it's local. Um, it take, they're usually some of the best um, businesses for the local communities. They they help out. They're they're involved in their local communities. They employ a ton of people. Um, and 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 back in the eighties and nineties, all you had to do was like sell cars and tell your ad agency what the prices of your cars you wanted in the newspaper were, and that was it. Think about what they got to do today. Now they got CRM, they got inventory feeds, they got social media, they got digital media they got you know uh google paid paid search they got all these third-party lead providers they got all these tools being thrown at them all these different logins all this kind of stuff so like i personally feel bad for dealers today and that's one of the reasons why i decided to start Strollet is because i said let me take some of that off your plate <laughs> like what why are you trying to manage all that? yeah it's hard like you know you know yeah. josh works for me one of his problems is he says yes to everything. And then eventually he can't do everything. So, cause he's got too much on his plate and I think yeah. dealers have too much on their plate. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. He's, I mean, I love yeah. Josh. He, he, he works his ass yeah. off, but my point is like, you can't possibly, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some great BDCs out there. Um, a lot of dealers have process that probably don't need a BDC and, you know, maybe BDC isn't for everybody, but like to me, go back to what I said. You're spending all this money on advertising. If the phone rings, make sure someone picks it up quick. If the lead hits, make sure someone emails it professionally and personally quick. If they respond back to you, make sure you're responding back to them quickly. Like to me, it's, you know, I have ADD. So everything to me is like, I got to keep things simple. But so to me, that's the most simple way I can explain why. Cause it's, you spend the money. If you don't handle that first, initial impression properly you're gonna lose business example i shopped the dealer recently yeah. i have a title to my truck right in my back um bookcase there i want to buy a truck i saw a tundra on a, on a dealer's site i send in an email no phone number i just said i don't want any calls but just let me know if this is available sorry it's sold but we have something similar coming in you know, when can you come in to uh, talk about it? And I said, well, what do you have? What color is it? The next email came to me. This is what it said. Here's the spec sheet. That's it. I click on the spec That's sheet. It? And it was a freaking double cab. I, I wanted a crew cab. Well, come on. We can do better than that. Like, how about the fact that? And when did you when did you do did this? Nineteen seventy eight. I'm not saying every deal is wow. like that because obviously they're not, and I'm not saying that not, not every, every every you know most a lot of dealers have good good people that care about their you know company and all that. Um, but that's all we focus on is to make sure that that experience goes off smooth. And then we communicate a lot to the dealer too to make sure that we don't miss anything or stuff we can't answer and stuff stuff like that. So like some something like that required somebody to say, "Hey, I get it. 
there's an inventory shortage. Um, if you're going to buy a Toyota Tundra, we want to make sure you buy it from us. And the best way to do that right now is to, you know, secure one that's incoming. And if I don't have anyone incoming, the next one that comes available, I can put your name on it. How does that sound? Or would you be open to pre-owned? Like this guy didn't try any of that. And guess what? I have a title to my truck. I own it free and clear. I guess it just doesn't matter right now. That's that's the scary part about today where there's no inventory. And, you know, the other thing that these digital retailing tools are going to have a lot of problem with with this industry, tackling this industry, is it changes so friggin' much and so fast. Like right now, you can't yeah. get your hands on any kind of economical vehicle yeah. that's good on gas. But two, a year and a half ago, they, dealers couldn't sell them. Right. That's just one example. Yeah. Trades are through the roof right yes. now. But in a year, they could be in the, you know, in the gutter. And dealers have to really pay close attention to that because they keep buying overpriced cars and then the market drops. They're screwed. They're going to they're gonna take a, a, a beating on it. That's why I was, I've been commenting a lot on LinkedIn about CarMax and Carvana. Like, they keep, you know, dealers are now selling cars to CarMax. Uh, that's not going to end well for CarMax, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to. Yeah, it, the the market has been really, really volatile in the last you know couple of years. Obviously, COVID changed a lot of things, and then um, the buying spree for dealers to, you know, you know, some dealers were already doing a really good job of managing their pre-owned, their used vehicle department. Um, others were just, you know, kind of mailing it in, just kind of this right. is the way we've always done it and not super uh, aggressive and detailed. And then now there's a lot of them that are like, oh, yeah, we've got to acquire private party vehicles, kind of like Carvana and CarMax and Vroom and Echo Park and all these others, which is true. They need to, they need to be doing that. But it's different when... Let's just say 5% of the franchise dealer body is really aggressively trying to up their trade game and also use tools that can help them acquire vehicles from the private party folks. It's one thing when there's a small, maybe a single digit percentage of dealers doing that to, well, now it's 30% or 50% or more. And that alone, I'd love to see somebody that could put together the data of something like that and then how it changes, because this is also still relative to, and then at the end of that, what kind of customer experience are you going to be able to provide? So let's go back real quick. So uh, I got the 13 stores up and running. I asked David if I could go to GM school. He said, yes, NADA Academy. So he sent me there. Thankfully, I appreciated that. One of my goals that I wrote down in 2001 was to become a general manager. So this is like 2005, 2006. I went to GM school and I took over a dealership. And um, because of my exposure and the data that I was exposed to in the BDC, which is to me like a, a hidden gem, a hidden secret that if dealers aren't spending enough time looking at the data that's coming through their BDC, then I don't know why like there's so much good information in there so i saw a lot of organic traffic coming through our website david and david uh did an advertisement campaign with um because we had the bdc running so well we did we we specifically we had had an ad company called zimmerman and we we went with the, the the um 
the messaging of call me from Blondie. So everywhere on the radio, TV, mm-hmm. and then there was like Ira, Ira, zero down at Ira. We had so many good slogans, but the call me one was specifically because we had the process in place to handle the calls. And we knew we were going to give people a good experience and good price when yeah. nobody else was doing it. So like we were, you know, taking advantage of that, which was brilliant. And um, then we went to click me when the website started getting um, popular and we saw our website traffic really increase from about 2001 to 2005. So I became a GM. I remember being in the GM meeting and I, and I told David, I wanted to cancel the Boston globe. I'm, I'm sure if anyone from the Boston globes, hears this podcast, they're probably not going to be too happy, but all the GMs <laughs> go like, are you crazy? That like, you're going to, that's going to kill your business. But I'm like, listen, I've been tracking it. Customers aren't coming in with the Boston globe under their own. So I saved 15 grand a month and I used 5,000 of it with some local company that was, I had been talking to about paid search. So I started, Mm -hmm. I used five grand of it, started paying for search back then. It was cheap to pay for search. Guess what? My lead volume increased. I took a store that wasn't making money for three years. It was a three-year-old store and we started making money in four or five months the, the traffic was I had on, I had the BDC following up. I had my salespeople following up on leads. Um, we cleaned the store up because it was a mess when I got there. And then <clears throat> about, you know, a year later, David asked me to come back to the BDC and do it for the whole East Coast. Um, but the good news, you know, I, I consider myself like blessed and, and privileged because of what I said earlier. We grew up in a time where all this stuff was new it was, and, and I got to experiment and try new things and um, watch it evolve. And it was fun. And I'm not saying it's not fun anymore, but like when I whittle it down, Sean, to what the core is that I do, it's how do I get more customers to help my dealers? But how do I get, how do I give the customer a better experience to increase the probability of, of selling a vehicle to somebody? You know, and it's mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of depressing right now because yeah. um, that's not as important right now because dealers don't have cars, but we're still taking care of lots of leads yeah. for, for dealers and doing yeah. our best to make sure. dealers they've really been able to uh, you know take advantage. Not necessarily all of them in a bad way, but they've been able to take advantage of this last couple of years, um, even with inventory shortages you know they sell everything they're going to get you know and they're 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 selling everything you know hey you want to pre-order you want to put your name on something coming in and i understand that and i don't have a problem at all i know you don't need of dealers you know having to to roll with whatever the punches may be um but i've been saying this and you got you and i have actually had some dialogue about this um you also have to be really careful as a dealer that you don't um, abuse the leverage that you have, right? You have leverage, you know, in uh, availability that uh, also then parlays into leverage on pricing and leverage on, you know, uh, customer experience. Like, are you really going to, you just gave an example of like, why wouldn't you at least take the time to say, Hey, you, uh, you probably know this, you know, inventory shortages have been an issue and we're sorry that somebody else picked up this one you're interested in, you know, but just gives you a Be little nice bit of, um, 
yeah. assurance makes you feel good. Yeah, it's just basic communication. It's not difficult, but there are a lot of dealers who are doing that. And then there are a lot of dealers who are not doing that. It'll be it's interesting gonna hurt. to see. It's going to hurt. The problem with the, the chaos is probably any sales type structure is it's a month to month gig, right? That's the problem. Uh, that's what needs to change in the car industry. People aren't. Yeah. They're worried about next month right now. They're not worried about July's almost over. Right. So next month, they, they try to make a living that month. And then the next month, they try to make a living that month. And no one's, hopefully, the deal principals and the GMs are smart enough to think like long term uh, and not just what's going on today. Because you're right, it will, it will erode their business at some point if, they're, if they have competition around them that is doing a better job at, at trying to work with customers today. Because we, we listen to so many calls, Sean. People are angry today. Like customers are very angry. Like I feel bad for my people because they they're doing their best to 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 to, to you know uh, you know calm the situation down and try to help them and and people are just they call from way out of state and all kinds of crazy stuff just panic you know frantically looking for inventory. We are seeing it to break in a little bit in certain models, but um, one thing I did want to talk about though you you brought up websites. So we got the dealer dot com website, and what I started doing is tracking leads. Right, so I started tracking stuff that came from the website. Stuff that came from the factory because we get factory leads and then stuff that came from like cars.com, auto trader, but really the third party leads. And I segregated those over the years. And <clears throat> so when I got to become a general manager, I knew that the organic traffic converted better. So I wanted more website traffic. It's just that simple, right? It wasn't, it wasn't rocket science. Like, cause I tracked mm-hmm. it. That's why I said if you're, if you're a general manager and you're not paying attention to the, the, the reporting, uh, within like some guys, you, you talked about lead addiction. They just go out and buy a ton of leads and think they're, that their BDC should close them all at 10% lead to close. It's just not the case. Um, cause I find, I, I find mm-hmm. it hard to, to, to find, uh, you know, a dozen to two dozen people that have more experience with this than me. Um, and honestly, I've been tracking it consistently and rigorously for tw- over 20 years. Uh, and third party leads just don't close as well. Some of them are terrible. Some of them dealers should never even mm-hmm. sign up for. Um, the factory leads can be good. Um, but the or- organic traffic, your local market, you want to make sure you're all over that kind of stuff. Engagement we measure now, all kinds of stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it starts with being nice to a customer. So th- all this digital retailing talk today, in 2007, I was given control for the whole East Coast for Group 1 for digital marketing. I had custom websites built throughout because they were, it was so bad. Some of the, our dealers, just their websites look terrible. Their pictures, their notes, me and the used car director at group one, his name is Rick Bickford. We, we, we did a tour. We, we went on the road and taught everybody how to take pictures and put notes on cars. And, uh, Mark Burak from liquid motors. You went with me when you were at reach local. Uh, we just tackled the whole East region and, and got everybody yeah. kind of working, um, the internet, but we, I installed, um, a, a, a credit app called dealer centric, right? Uh, on every website, remember. all of yeah. our finance managers were trained to pull a credit app. This is 2007. Now we were giving pricing. We had lease profit, which is a market scan tool, um, that we would run leases for people. And we, we had a process that we would, 
when we scheduled an appointment, the managers at the stores would get email and let, they would know and it would be in the CRM and all that kind of stuff. And we would go out and train that process to every dealership and say, hey, when the customer comes in, this is what they're expecting. They're expecting to see the manager, you know, having the manager call and confirm the appointment, all that kind of stuff we developed over the years. And uh, that was, to me, digital retailing. Yeah. Now today they want everybody to kind yeah. of funnel through this like tool and do it themselves. And I'm like laughing because it's not the think about it. You got inventory shortage, you got price volatility, you got finance, you got um, registration, trade information, all this kind of stuff. Customers have questions. Unless you're a super geek. Yeah. Right. Do you have a, I think I told you this before, but we have, um, yeah. we, we used to put all our, our employees through this profiling. What I thought was most interesting about this profiling is only 18% of the population, 18% don't like to talk to people. 60% want to trust you. They want to, they want to make sure that they can, you know, that, that you trust them. They trust you that there's a relationship there, that they, they want to feel comfortable, all that kind of stuff. 60%. Now there's another 11%. That's where I, 12%. That's where I fall into, which is like a lay down. Like, but they're salespeople, right? They're, they're social. So now you take 60 plus 12, that's 72% of the population that want to deal with other people. And we want to eliminate that. Why? Because who's running the world right now? Microsoft, Amazon, Google, all these geeks. But people want people are, people are social. Meta. People want to talk to people. And they and I hope that never ends because God forbid yeah. that, that's what my grandmother would do. God forbid. Like Well then I won't I won't I won't drop some info on you, right? But think about that. Think about what I just said. Seventy two percent of the people not are social yeah, now we're trying to eliminate all that by by forcing them through yeah. some app. Well, and we're also creating um, uh, virtual uh, versions of social connection. And uh, you mentioned it. I don't remember if we actually said TikTok on the recorded episode thus far, but. Um, uh, TikTok's been eating Facebook's lunch yeah. and they know it. And, um, just wait, cause I've already read a couple articles just this week about now what direction Facebook slash meta is going, um, in terms of experiences and really what TikTok's already doing. That is not when you watch something on TikTok or a Facebook uh, story or an Instagram reel and you're loving it and it's entertaining and it's all great. That is not the same thing as actually being face to face with somebody. It's not the same. It's it appeases that part of somebody's mind because you get a dopamine hit of like, oh, yeah. Yeah, like you feel you feel good. I stopped because right? you're entertained. You got, I think got, people are mad at me because I was pretty active on it years ago. And. I don't even, if I remember, I might go and wish somebody a happy birthday once in a while, but like I, I try to stay off it just because of what you just said. Mm-hmm. It is depressing to me, especially during that last election. Just mm-hmm. to see how vicious people get in with each other and stuff. There was a, it was, there terrible. was a vicious election. No, but it was in so- America. What? 
You mean yeah. it affected people's friendships? You mean it eliminated the just, crazies? Uh, yeah. Sickening. I know it's people have. I think I shared this story with you recently. People, unfortunately, in the last few years, it's just gotten worse. It's been building over time. Internet, and as it relates to people, car business, customer experience, and all that, but even in um, personal relationships and family members, people are now more distorted and cannot clearly and cleanly see the middle. The middle includes disagreement. The the middle includes you don't have to have the same philosophies or beliefs and all that kind of stuff. It's like that's okay. I, I can tolerate those differences. No no problem. I enjoy uh, because I like all these other things. And we have all these family. We argued a lot, but no one loved each other more than the people in that family. Mm-hmm. And just because we don't agree with each other doesn't mean we hate each other. I can't understand the hatred that's coming out of right. Like, like uh, I'll give you a quick example. There's probably dealers, BDC managers, or someone out there that's going to listen to this and go, ah, he's just promoting his business and he's trying to put me out of business or whatever and hate it and try to argue with me or, or, or some of the topics I've talked about probably, you know, they have a different opinion on it. Great. This is, you know, how I saw the history unfold right to where we're at today. And, and I met you, in 2009 at a digital dealer conference. Um, and that, mm. and, and then you joined reach local a couple of years later, I think. Right. So I think a little earlier than no. that, but yeah, 2000, maybe around that time, maybe, you know, I was at reach local during cash for clunkers. I met you at digital dealer. Yeah. There you go. Anyway, that was where I discovered, holy shit, because I'm a data guy, right? I'm like, wow, Ira got, they got so many customers in their database. Like, there's a gold mine. We're not even talking to them. So we started, and the next thing you know, there's auto alerts and all these other companies popping up a few years later. And then social media came and I took over everyone's Facebook page in the East Coast because I knew dealers weren't coming. I remember I got invited to speak to all the general managers at a group one conference in Houston and uh, they wanted me to talk about social media and Facebook. And like I had a literally had a Facebook page for maybe a year. And here I am the expert on stage telling everybody <laughs> all about social media. <laughs> yeah, but, you, know, you you came out with ReachCast, remember? And I was really all about it. Yeah, and so that yeah. was another phase, right? So you had you had search, then you had database, then you had you know um, n- none of it really changed the problem is my point. Uh, then you had uh, which which it's not a problem. None, none, nothing, none of it really ever changed the fact that you want to give a good customer experience. That's uh, that's the core yeah. of it, right? Yes. And I think dealers do give good customer experiences, for the yeah. part, especially compared to, to, to 20 or 30 years ago. I, I, had, I, I had told you this before, but there was a post recently for some girl talking about this Gen Z um, crazy because the millennials were talking about it all the time 10 years ago. Now you don't hear from them as much, but the Gen Z and how you, you know, if you're a business, you need to equip us with the right technology and all this other stuff because we, you know, we prefer, we demand it. And I'm like, my comment back to her was, do you think none of us wanted better technology 20 years ago? (laughs) You think none of us wanted it to be easier? Of course we did. It's just, 
you know, it evolves. It doesn't happen. It, it doesn't happen overnight. You are. You don't just snap your fingers and all of a sudden digital retailing is a thing. You weren't. You weren't too harsh yeah. this Gen Z or were you? I like, hope you not. didn't like make. I don't know. People are very sensitive nowadays, so maybe I did. I don't know. I didn't mean to. Sorry if you're listening to me, but um, the point. The point I'm trying to make is like well, it isn't any uh, different. It's just evolving, right? It's you're just gonna stay stay in tune to it. Yeah. Uh disruption is another crazy word. You know, people talk about AI. That's the new buzzword recently. Uh, digital retailing AI. So what is AI today? Um if you ask a technologist, artificial intelligence is using data to understand things, right? And then build tools to help streamline process right but it's not people call like notifications ai yeah. now no it's not ai it's a notification they've been around for a long time mm-hmm. automations they call ai no that's not ai that's been around for a long time as well or they talk about um bots yeah a bot you can teach it to say a few sentences and then take over, like on a chat, like we do. The, we do that with service on our service. But it's not really AI, right? And then it's like AI that, like, oh, well, Sean, we're going to send you an email, and then when you respond, we alert the dealer, and that's AI. No, it isn't. Every CRM can do that, and no one calls it. Only certain mm-hmm. people call it AI. So just be careful out there with that. That's the new craze. And it makes me crazy every time I hear someone calling something AI because it's really not like to me. Yeah, AI is uh, is that uh, chess playing robot that uh, yeah. uh, earlier this week did you see that headline? The kids were playing in the tournament, and that AI robot was so smart that the kid was making a move apparently when it wasn't time to move, or he was adjusting a piece on the board, and the robot grabbed the kid's finger and would not let it go, <laughs> and then That's continued uh, to. Hold on, and all these adults oh, were trying to, and no, it broke the kid's finger. The AI in the chess playing robot. So, if that were my kid, I'd be like, you know what? Maybe we can just play chess with dad and grandpa, and you know, like we'll stay yeah, out of the robot eerie, chess tournaments eerie, for now. Yeah, but but it, it is scary, yeah. you know. Um, some really, really bright, smart, 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 super smart think tank type people are talking about like 50, 60 percent of the jobs in <clears throat> 30 years are going to be gone. And 50% of the population is going to be uh, living off the government and all that kind of stuff because of AI and automation. So be careful what you wish for is my, my word. Of yeah, I'm not, I'm not wishing for it. I hope I'm. Uh, no, so human beings are social then, so beings. They need, be, uh, other social, they need to be social. If, if it ever gets to the point where a computer and robot does everything for me, I don't need to talk to anybody. Uh, that, that, that's a definition of depression for me. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it's going to be very, very interesting. It'll be interesting how, you know, real artificial intelligence, uh, you know, actually is transformative in industries like automotive and like uh, customer service. Do you think there will ever be a, uh, I guess somebody could be listening or watching to the, this episode yeah. and saying it's here now, but do you think there's ever going to be an artificial intelligence factor that provides a better experience for the customer? Yeah, I than think what um, we're doing with people. Because, you know, I have a CTO, Thomas Howe now, and he's building some great tech for us. And the way I look at AI and the way I look at smart technology guy. is 
the way we built it 20 years ago, it wasn't that good. Uh, and it caused other problems. For example, click this button, click that button, mm -hmm. you know, make sure you set this up properly, make sure you set that pro properly, and you still miss it. And, and then someone doesn't use the technology properly, so it doesn't spit out the right data. But it, what it should do, it should be simplified, and the AI and, and the technologist should make it so it's kind of like what an iPhone is now. I mean, how, how, who can't use an iPhone? It's so simple. But you look at a yeah. dealer CRM, it's pretty complicated. Yeah. We're trying to help that. As a matter of fact, we're working with eLead and Solutions Deal yeah. Socket now. We have uh we're working with Techion uh with their API uh because they're open to being open and working with us because they realize, I think, I hope, that they can't do everything for every dealer and that we can help support their system. And then there's some other CRM companies out there that yeah. Oh no, we got the best. We don't need anyone's help. We got all this AI and dealer only needs us and they don't need anyone else. They're going to be out of business in the future because at the end of the day. Yeah, there's certainly a, yeah. There's opportunities for collaboration that, uh, you know, that being open to, to that seems to be the, the smarter move, especially when you got so many moving oh, significant well, moving pieces. Um, it's difficult for, I mean, the, dealer, the, the OEM shops and dealers everyone. all the time for, for like quality. Some of these systems, they don't even, the lead mm -hmm. didn't even come in. And then the poor BDC team is getting beat up because they, they failed the mystery yeah. shop. Uh, or, or something like that. Like, because these systems don't work yeah. perfectly. And so I think that's where technology is going. It's going to get better tech. There's going to be better programs. There's going to be better CRM type programs that might might utilize some automation and things to take away the minutiae because frankly working in a bdc there's a lot of minutiae we've eliminated a lot of that with our tech so people can talk to people instead of spend half their day working on a crm to make yeah. sure it spits out the right report you would not believe sean how many dealers we we we, we talk to where their bdcs have the thing rigged so they can get a one minute response. I literally had a GM yeah. of a store. God, thank God I didn't, we didn't do business with them. Tell me when I told them we were 10 minutes or less with a personalized response, he said, that's not good enough. And I'm like, okay, but it's personalized. Remember some of these emails come through with complicated questions and things like that, that you got to research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're at two minutes or less. Well, here's your, uh, here's your trophy. Shop them, shop them. Guess what it is? Yeah, it's a bullshit phone email that gets sent out just to stop the clock. Or as people are stopping the clock on the phone because they know this maniac is going to beat them up if they're over two minutes. I mean, it's so stupid, right? And so how long that's I mean, going on now? I mean, it's, some of these places yeah. they, they have pay plans for their management and BDC staff. And then they just game the system and the, 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 the poor dealer principal or owner of GM doesn't have time to really examine what they're doing, maybe for six months or a year, like that kind of stuff. And so the technology we're building yeah. eliminates that kind of stuff. You can't do it. First of all, we can't do that as a company because we'll get fired. We'll get, they'll cancel us if we're cheating them. Mm -hmm. um, but number two, we try to be as transparent, yeah. open with the data we're seeing so we can make improvements to get better instead of, you know, harping on a two minute response time. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting that because the, the, the stop the clock 
situation has been going on for I don't know how many years. A long time now. A long, long time. And it got worse when the OEM... Yeah, do you remember when GM, let's just call them out, like, you know, whatever, I'm not a GM guy, but um, not a hater either. But General Motors was the first one that I remember that had this incentive built in hey stop the clock stop the clock and if you did if you were achieved this thing then you it was had something to do with co-op dollars remember that time period they measured, they measured the clock 24 yeah 365 ironically i and mean what this 24 7 now because, this, not because of general motors it was because we they're doing chat during those times anyway and believe it or not there are a lot of people chatting at that time so right. we decided hey Let's answer leads that come in overnight too. Personally, not not an automated response. We have yeah. an actual human being that reads every lead to make sure that if there's questions or personalize it to the best of our ability. And that's it. It takes labor to do that. Like we have to pay people to do that. We're not paying an automation for that because, frankly, I've seen a lot of automations. An automation can't answer a product question yet. Or, yeah. But that's a perfect example of stop the clock um, because I'm focused on the dealer's side of this equation. That's that's not thinking about providing good con- consumer experience. What you just described, what the way you guys do it, that is prioritizing. We want the experience for the customer to be authentic, to be real. You're getting a real person. We're here 24 hours a day versus, hey, let's put some sort of automation rule in so that we don't get yeah. a negative mark by, you know, the overlords from the, you know, the manufacturer. You just described the difference between taking the importance of a quick quality response and how it's handled is very different. If it's mail it in so you don't get slapped by your overlords at the whatever level, if it's management company, if it's the OEM versus now we're going to do it the right way, the way that the customer wants to be communicated yeah. with. That's the difference. That's exactly what you're talking about. Big, yeah. big. I mean, just big to sort of summarize, you went from buying from your local dealer because everything was local. The every, you know everything was local. Like you went to the local lo- hardware store. You went to the local, you know, mm-hmm. place to buy a suit. You went to the local car dealer. Now it's not like that. So and then you know seventies inflation, cars got expensive. Eighties people started shopping more. Nineties people started shopping more. And then the internet happened and 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 brought in a tremendous amount of transparency and um, gave us new way to ways to market to customers, which we're still exploring. Like this podcast, for example, um, is something somewhat new um, in terms of, you know, helping get messaging and stuff like that out there. And and so, and it's always changing. I just like, I like, like when you approached me on this idea, I, 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 I liked it right away. Um, and some things I don't like. And, you know, yeah. some people are going to agree with what I say today and some people aren't. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I mean, listen, this is a, this is a great yeah. place, I think, to park this one. Um, you know, um, covers a lot of ground um, for folks that don't have some of the historical perspective. I know a lot of people that are newer to the car business that when I tell them stories, 
from the 90s. They're like, what? Or when I tell them about my own childhood experiences of having an uncle that was both the service and the parts manager in a tiny Ford store and how I loved, I can still smell the inside of that tiny Ford dealership. I mean, the little chiclet gumball machines, putting a penny in, all these awesome stories. Um, it's a great industry, and it's one that has so many touch points with the consumer that um, it will be great to continue to unpack all of these um, you yeah. know, ways to help dealers and help the automotive industry understand how we keep getting better and we keep improving. And guess what? You hear me say it all the time. Experience is the great differentiator, and you have uh, an probably an uncalculatable uh, num- number of years <laughs> and time invested and sacrifice to get that experience. I think it's going to be really beneficial on this podcast. So regarding this episode, if you like love or none of the above, we'd still love to hear from you. The dealer insights podcast gets better with comments, questions, and feedback and recommendations from you, the listener or the viewer. So drop them in the comments section below, especially if you're watching this on YouTube, or you can send them to info at strawlid that's spelled S T R O L I D info at strawlid.com. And until next time, stay strong and solid. Thanks, Thanks. Appreciate it.